All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Neuroflex podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. If you guys have ever heard of neurofeedback before, this is a technology where we're basically measuring the electrical activity of the brain and then feeding it back to people. So in terms of uh, rewarding certain brainwave frequencies that we're training. So if someone might be watching some media on a screen, they would see the screen become clear, the audio becomes louder when the person's brain is producing those desired electrical frequencies. And then when the brain deviates from that healthy activity, the screen gets dimmer, the audio gets quieter. So hence the negative and, and positive feedback there. So that's one of the technologies that we offer here at Neuroflex. Um, if you're in Fort Lauderdale, Miami, um, we do neurofeedback as a mobile service. It's all guided based on the QEEG brain mapping assessment, along with your specific uh, uh, training goals. So if you're interested in that, go ahead and check us out at www.neuroflex.com. That's N-U-R-O-F-L-E-X.com. On to today's show, um, we have a very special guest, Adam Cope Arnold. Adam is the CEO and founder of Cubed Biotech, Inc., and he has a decade of experience owning and operating premium brands in the regulated industries of raw dairy, yogurt, and cannabis with over $50 million in sales to date. Cubed is a Montreal-based Canadian company that intends to develop and produce psychedelic medicine inspired by historical ethnobotany to disrupt the current treatments of mental illness and addiction. Cubed intends to cultivate, extract, and also synthesize natural entheogens, including psilocybin from mushrooms, mescaline from cacti, and ayahuasca's DMT and MAO inhibitors, along with manufacture pharmaceutical mental health and addiction medicines, and develop its own proprietary compounds through clinical trials for pharmaceutical-grade distribution and commercialization. So Adam, really, really excited to have you on the show today. Thank you, Toby. Couldn't have said it uh, better myself. <laughs> awesome. So, so tell me a little about kind of your your career in terms of like, um, you know, I, I mentioned you you did some work in the cannabis space. Like, is there it was that kind of a, a smooth transition transition from cannabis to psychedelics? Was it is it a completely different ball game? Like, tell me a little about that. Yeah. So the last decade, as you said, I've been uh, in regulatory operations. And I was rather naive um, to get into it, especially dairy with such a competitive sort of dollar in four quarters out uh, profiteering, I guess you could call it a low margin industry. Uh, we call it FMCG, uh, fast moving consumer goods, as opposed to CPG. Um, we started with $5, my fiance, Eloise and I, and uh, eventually wound up selling almost $10 million of uh, yogurt and dairy and ice cream and butter about two or three years later. Uh, that really prepared me for the confluence of branding, which I had been doing in restaurants and franchising and musicians and, and record labels for about 10 years prior uh, with controlled substances, regulated uh, pro products uh, in Quebec and Canada in general. Milk is highly regulated, more so than the U.S. in terms of the uh, bo bovine growth hormone and different things that aren't allowed in any Canadian milk, not just organic. Um, meaning the provinces and the federal government have uh, strict control over everything, not just the end products being safe, but the amount of fat, 
protein and, uh, you know, lactose that we're using uh, on a very sort of per gram basis. So when we're dealing with 5 million liters of milk a year picked up by our raw tanker uh, from, from uh, grass-fed and regular uh, predominantly Holstein and Jersey cow farms in uh, eastern townships of Quebec, you know, we're dealing with um, pretty, pretty strict regulations that absolutely informed me to get into cannabis uh, and then psychedelics. For cannabis, I've worked for three companies in Montreal, AAA, Medic, Great White North, and MTL Cannabis, and um, cut my teeth on everything but cultivation. So getting licenses from sales licenses to deal with um, individual provinces, you know, direct sales to the dis to distributor who is the province, um, to setting up water extraction, which informed my water, methanol, and ethanol extractions of uh, psychedelics that will we begin uh, anytime soon once we get our dealer's license, a controlled substance license in Canada from Health Canada that is the equivalent in the U.S. of a DEA license to be able to work with these controlled substances, specifically the classic psychedelics. When we talk about natural entheogens, we're talking about really, for me, mushrooms, cacti, and ayahuasca, which is chacruta, the DMT plant, P. viridis, plus Benisteriopsis capi, which is the vine with the three reversible MAO inhibitors, harmine, harmaline, and harmalol, amongst others. But those are the interesting ones, therapeutic. So um, yeah, naive to get into an industry, especially in Canada, where there are only a couple of big dairy companies, and they were all intrigued from General Mills to uh, Parmalat. They, they all were intrigued by why we're selling yogurt for two and a half times the price. And the, the answer was, well, it's, I won't call it therapeutic, but we had an A2 beta casein protein from these Jersey cows, single origin farms that we were selling in real Greek yogurt, meaning strained 50%, no powders or anything added or any mechanical separation. And um, that brought people back to dairy. So a certain amount, about 20% of people who think they're lactose intolerant actually have this this sort of modernized uh, protein, the A1, which is a problem with it, with it, digesting it, which is the typical black and white Holstein cows that we see from Ben and Jerry's branding to in Canada, about 98, 99% of all cows. So we realized that de-innovating, and I think this is very important for my dairy experience, I de-innovated. I went back to real Greek gravity straining. We went back to a cow that was from the Jersey Island, you know, the Channel Islands between English, um, England and France, like a Guernsey cow as well, these cute little brown cows, as well as some Indian cows that, you know, are, are sort of pre-modernization uh, or pre-industrialization uh, in terms of, you know, agricultural and, and, and cows. So what that informed me in psychedelics is the natural entheogens. And our company, we certainly have the ability and will have the ability to synthesize molecules like MDMA, ketamine, um, psilocybin, which would be considered semi-synthetically from organic, you know, foundations like 5-hydroxyindole, uh, but really focusing on what we learned from cannabis too, which is the consumer wants what he wants, she wants. It's We're looking at Oregon and Washington um, should probably shutting out synthetic APIs. So I think that we have Take, we took a chance a year, year and a half ago when we incorporated, but raising money, which we appear to be one of the only people that can raise money in this current environment, October, November, 2022, where the whole world is sort of crumbling financially as well, um, to stick and to be stubborn. I'll use that word you know, somewhat facetiously, to be stubborn, to stick to classic psychedelics, stick to the tryptamines we know are working, 
like psilocybin and psilocin, the active, you know, the pro-drug psilocybin needs to be converted through the liver. And the psilocin is what acts uh, upon, um, upon our uh, serotonergic receptors and this whole concept of the default mode network, the parts of our brain that are reset, uh, the parts of our brain that have negative thought loops. Uh, we're inv we've invested quite a bit. We had a $575,000 grant from at McGill to study the default mode network with Dr. Uh, Rose Baggett in, um, in a rat model. And that was uh, a lot of money was given by McGill ourselves um, the Ludmer Foundation, but also the Ministry of Economy and Innovation in Quebec signed off on this, knowing that the mental health issues, immunity, mental health are all, um, you know, very important for the citizenry here. So we're seeing a lot of money in Quebec that might not be available in the rest of Canada or the U.S. Um, flowing in through like biopharmaceutical foundations, the CQDM, for instance, put in a couple hundred grants. So we're really seeing coming out of pandemic, how it merges with psychedelic medications, which you know, there was one medication 50 years ago from Sandoz, from Hoffman, which was called Indocybin. It was two milligrams, which right now would be considered uh, a mini dose, not a micro subperceptual on the line, depending on a person, but on the line of what we would call psychedelic or perceptual, meaning the person can actually perceive that they're on something as opposed to a microdose where you really are not aware throughout the day. Uh, until the end of the day, you have to remind yourself, oh, I feel calmer, I have less anxiety because I did it this morning. That's sort of the goal of microdosing is, is not to have um, a psychedelic hallucin hallucinatory experience. So, um, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of convergence on um, a 25 milligram therapeutic sample in terms of uh, NYU Langone has taken um, over 60 days, day one, day 30, day 60, and people have not had a drink in, in years. So, uh, this is absolutely disruptive and transformative. And the paradox that I'm finding or that I perceive will happen is, and this is what's probably scaring some ph big pharmaceuticals to get in. The more you take, the less you need. That's the paradox. Meaning it's actually, um, I'll be careful not to use the word cure or heal, but there's certainly some long-term benefits that you means you do not need to take medication every day, like SSRIs, Prozac, Zoloft, uh, Paxil, and Effexor. Um, so the model of one molecule for one disease is being broken, but also the um, the concept of, of, of certain amount of revenue per year, um, hooking people on these drugs every day with side effects, you know, 50, 60, 70% in surveys will say that it helps them. But I believe that part of that is sort of a cognitive uh, bias where you want to believe things are helping. Um, anecdotally, you know, there's a lot of side effects with some of these SSRI antidepressants. We know that Prozac is currently off patent and they're trying to repurpose it for other issues. So, uh, and it's the only one that kids are really technically allowed to be taking um, in terms of the, the clinical trial proof. So a lot going on, a lot informing me to just to, to reiterate from consumer demand in, in, in yogurt and cannabis, um, but on a wellness basis. And, and I do think that we will see a bifurcation of what we call here natural health products or dietary supplements in the U.S., OTC products that are sub-perceptual. Um, for instance, in Canada, Health Canada has approved Amanita muscaria, the red and white, uh, you know, beautiful um, Alice in Wonderland mushroom, which has ibotenic acid, which is in theory a, a neurotoxin that shouldn't be taken but it breaks down under decar decarboxylation to muscimol. Muscimol has some fascinating properties that people are using right now for sedatives, um, to deal with uh, arthritis, 
there's a couple other things because it affects the GABA receptor. It's an agonist of the GABA receptor. So that suggests that Canada, which has always been first in compassionate grounded use of controlled substances like cannabis, we have a whole medical regime that became recreational, doing well, no bad stories of people crashing over, you know, the night after it's legal. It's been very um, um, somewhat sterilized, but it's been a very safe rollout. So Health Canada, uh, the Minister of Health, the discussion right now is the multi-regulatory path in Canada, which started with a section 56.1 exemption to the criminal code, meaning individuals were exempt uh, to get mushrooms off the black market or from sometimes from dealers license companies, uh, the equivalent of the DA lab that can produce these molecules naturally or synthetically. That started taking a year um, and this would be interesting. So Canada did not start allowing psilocybin and other psychedelics for their actual purpose of resetting the default mode network for mental health and addictions. It was on compassionate grounds for people with uh, a certain cancer and a certain amount of time to live that I would call it spiritual palliation. So what that means is Health Canada and the ministers at the time, Patty Haydu, now uh, Jean-Yves Duclos, who's from Quebec City, not too far from Montreal in Quebec, um, they were looking at the charter rights in Canada, similar to Constitution, Bill of Rights, et cetera, in the U.S., looking at compassion, not the medical necessity. Um, and that's very interesting because that's how cannabis started here. And I think it's usually the easiest way to, to get into the actually dosing patients. Uh, in January, and, and not many people know this in Canada or anywhere else, because you're really not allowed to market this as a DL supplier, dealer's licensed supplier, the special access program re-added psilocybin that was taken off 15, 20 years ago to the special access program. And there's two categories. Typically, special access is a last resort that a doctor would requisition Health Canada in a 48-hour turnaround if all the paperwork's there. Um, if they had taken every medication under the sun, let's say for depression, SSRIs or MAO inhibitors in the past or tetracyclines, um, and you could import a drug that's not available in Canada. That was the special access category one. But category two is, you know, providing drugs that don't exist through the dealer's license lab. And now there's a list. I don't think it's public, but I saw it in a press release. It's like five to 10 dealer's license companies that can supply psilocybin to people with a doctor's note. Not every doctor's note takes 48 hours. Sometimes um, you have you, the proof that it's a last resort isn't there or the paperwork was misfiled or you don't have a dealer's license lab uh, because the labs cannot advertise. But right now there is absolutely medical access to psilocybin and other uh, potential um, you know, uh, psychedelic uh, mental health medications that are essentially APIs, capsulized, encapsulated APIs, active pharmaceutical ingredients, synthetic psilocybin would be obviously the number one um, uh, product that's going into people's hands. In Quebec, there's one or two people who receive special access. Um, I don't think Health Canada talks about how many people, <clears throat> but there's tons of different drugs that people are applying uh, for a special access program that are not necessarily mental health or psychedelic related. So it is a process uh, a bureaucratic process that is meant to be relatively quick, as opposed to the section 56, the first access uh, point in Canada that took now up to a year and Theracil is fighting on a constitutional basis to go faster. I would suggest we go into the special access program 
uh, for all these people to get quicker access. But the third, um, the final regulations, if I could call that, which we're anticipating, we have we have no feedback necessarily right now, but we'd like to uh, play a part on part of a psych, the Canadian um, part of Psychedelics Canada, an association uh, who is liaisoning with the with the government because there's a lot of experts coming in the psychedelic biotech world. I personally perceive that they Health Canada will allow these APIs in not on a federal regulatory basis, but how GW Pharma brought Epidiolex in to the American world for Dreve syndrome, for uh, seizures in young children as an orphan drug, where they didn't wait for any uh, cannabis marijuana legalization. Dr. Jeffrey Guy from GW Pharma, now owned by Jazz uh, Pharma, is pushed with his own money, his own raised capital, and spent a ton of money to get this product to market. Um, that means the psychedelic biotechs have the onus, not necessarily the federal government, Health Canada or, or the FDA. Um, I do believe it's possible that Biden or whomever's next could legalize as cannabis is you know, slowly meandering towards getting out of this multi-state concept and a federal concept, not uh, hemp, uh, you know, CBD derived from hemp, which is legal everywhere. But you know, why can't we have a natural health product uh, of muscimol? Why can't we have a sub-perceptual one milligram microdose. I do believe that the world is now really starting, you know, the concept and the education, the destigmatization of psychedelics is really happening on Netflix <laughs> more so than anywhere else. Obviously, great magazines and newspapers are picking this up. But what I mean by that is popular psychology, the pop popular North American media are doing the job of the biotechs. They are educating the populace. And it's sort of like that watershed moment in cannabis a couple of years ago. Where everybody's grandmother at Thanksgiving, they were talking about CBD ointment for arthritis. In Quebec, they have some draconian rules that don't allow any CBD tinctures or um, lotions or anything, which obviously would help people without any uh, side effects, you know, through the skin, whether there's some THC or not. Um, but I do believe that, you know, the consumers, the patients, citizens, uh, should take a larger role in um, defining the regulatory pathways, which is not always just APRs for pharma that are, you know, blister packed like Prozac in a pharmacy. In Canada, we quote unquote have free healthcare. It's not actually free healthcare. I hope the NDP, Jagmeet Singh, the leader who wants full pharmacare, meaning glasses, dentists, uh, no co-pays on, on certain medications. I'm hoping that that uh, progressive stance will win out in the US and Canada uh, allowing people to have access, not necessarily just to a therapeutic sit down, you know, in a nice sort of Moroccan uh, pillowed area with a MD or psychiatrist, but would enable everyone to benefit from the subperceptual anti-anxiety, clearing of the brain um, from one to 10 to 25 milligrams, natural or synthetic, uh, because we're seeing that it works. Absolutely. Got it. Well, Adam, you know, people I feel like who've been following the, you know, psychedelic therapy uh, resurgence, you know, have have heard a lot about psilocybin. Um, tell me, you know, the the other couple that that we had mentioned, so the, the mescaline from cacti and then uh, ayahuasca's DMT and then also the MAO inhibitors. Tell me about kind of what you've seen in terms of the therapeutic potential of those those different chemicals. 
Yeah. And, you know, we have to include LSD as well. Um, mm -hmm. It's hard to come from natural because it's, you know, it's uh, basically a toxin to grow it. You know, the claviceps is like a, not a, not a healthy thing to have around uh, breathing humans. Um, but what we're seeing, you know, most people are focusing on semi-synthetic psilocybin, mm -hmm. but coming out of Wonderland, my number one ask from other um, pharma or biotech companies was Ibogaine and MDMA. Um, Ibogaine for addiction has been used in West Coast of Canada, but it's sort of a little more difficult to access. Uh, it's tough from Gabon, Cameroon to export the Tabernanth uh, Iboga shrub. There is a couple other um, actually higher percentages of different trees you can get it from. But Ibogaine, to naturally extract it, is about one to three steps. But to produce it semi-synthetically, it's 20 steps. Very difficult because that presumes it could be up to a month to actually produce, you know, even a small scale. So mescaline um, coming from three cacti, uh, peyote, San Pedro, and uh, Peruvian torch amongst others, but those are the three. Uh, number one, peyote, uh, even in California, when um, it was tabled and taken back, um, legal, full legalization without commercial, without the sales, they didn't allow peyote. I think it'll be interesting to uh, Americans and Canadians that, Peyote is not a controlled substance. I'm not allowed to use it no matter what uh, because of the ethno-religious and potentially over farming or over harvesting and overuse. So we talk about, you know, growing San Pedro because uh, peyote takes years and years anyway. It's uh, not a not a commercially scalable product um, naturally, but Peruvian torch and um, San Pedro, which look more like more traditional tall, um, tall cacti you'd see you'd see in the desert. Um, uh, that mescaline is is sort of like in a watermelon. It's right inside the um, the the, the uh, outside green area where it becomes sort of white. Not exactly easy and not a huge part of the plant, but you know, mescaline I would really simply describe as a feel good. There, especially synthetically, from what I'm hearing, there's less of a first hour um, anxiety or issues that psilocybin has. Psilocybin. Number one, our body has to break down the chitin, the equivalent of cell walls, but chitin is what crustaceans are made of, the hard shells and crabs and lobster. That's what our body's breaking down. There's a lot of psilocin in the chitin, but really um, the body, you know, you can feel it on the stomach if it's a natural mushroom you're eating, not an extract, but also the hepatic, you know, bypass of, um, you know, converting the, the, the prodrug psilocybin to psilocin to be active. You know, an extract will, will help that, a pill even more so. Um, but we're seeing that, you know, mescaline doesn't necessarily have, um, it, it could go up and down in terms of it, what we would casually call a trip or, or the, the therapeutic experience. Um, but it hasn't been talked about as much as I'd like it to see. It's not a tryptamine. It's a, it's a phenethylamine, um, which is, you know, like MDMA sort of, uh, empathogen and tactogen sort of more, that's why I call it a feel good empath empathogen feel good. So there's some interesting um, usage, obviously, culturally, ethno-religiously, ethnobotany in the Southwest of America and Mexico. Um, and I really want to, again, going back to why we're natural entheogens, I can't do any R&D if I'm just synthesizing psilocybin. But if I bring in a mushroom or a cacti, I can see what else is going on. You know, mushrooms have 14 active ingredients, four, five, six tryptamines. We're using mutant strains up to one and a half percent psilocybin that don't look like mushrooms anymore. Um, crazy strains from our mycologist and um, the 
loss of understanding those other tryptamines, for, for instance, the sedative or uh, analgesic or anesthetic properties in some of these other tryptamines would be lost. So again, we're really trying to understand from shamans, from the historical usage, from the fact that our tryptamine receptors, serotonergic receptors shut down. They sort of, as described to me, shut down physically. And that's why you can't really uh, experience a trip or a therapeutic uh, hallucinatory event from psilocybin mushrooms every day. Your body, your receptors know when to say no. And that's very powerful because it's not, it's non-addictive. And really when you talk about SSRIs, which you could argue are addictive only based on one thing, the withdrawal, physically addictive. Um, certainly it's not always mental addictive because people don't want to be on SSRIs, but you know, the fact that psilocybin, psilocybin, psilocybin mushrooms, the genera, um, are non-addictive is really why I do believe there should be a natural health product and perhaps deregulated or pharmacy as opposed to, you know, OTC as opposed to uh, a, a real finished drug product like, like Paxil or Prozac. I, I do believe that there is a, a way to go here. And it, the acceptance has been much faster than cannabis. Cannabis started in 2001 in Canada and recreationally legalized in 2017. Um, you know, when we look at how quickly in Canada, at least the regulatory environment has changed from section 56 to SAP to now talking about how do we have successful clinical trials so we can actually have finished drug products. It's been, it's only been a couple of years. Uh, there are, there were in cannabis, three seminal Supreme court cases in Canada, and we are seeing a couple here. Theracil is leading the way in terms of challenging the constitutionality of the section 56 exemption on compassionate grounds. So again, Canada leads the way um, on Toronto Bay street, as opposed to wall street leads the way in uh, value creation, uh, retail investor uh, wealth creation, and ultimately betting on horses. Uh, we've already seen some companies fall by the wayside. I think primarily because they raised more than they thought and put all the money to use as opposed to patient. You know, I say, we're a company that has patience for patients, uh, CE for TS. So we're, we're taking a slow roll because we can't guarantee regulatory allowance uh, on a large level anytime soon. Um, but we have to be patients for the patients, the people that need to be quote unquote cured because how, how can they get access right now? How can we facilitate that? Um, not necessarily as a private biotech company, but on behalf of associations, Supreme Court cases, and certainly these great nonprofits like Theracil that are, are fighting fighting the good fight. Right. And, and when it comes to kind of looking at the future of, say, you know, like both like compassionate use in Canada that you mentioned, along with just the regulatory changes that, you know, will hopefully allow more of these, uh, you know, uh, these compounds to become available for, for therapeutic use. Um, you know, what do you see happening kind of within the psychedelic industry when you look, you know, five years down the road, 10 years down the road, um, yeah. based on your experience? So, you know, we have the, um, the Spravato or the Esketamine by Johnson & Johnson to look out. Obviously, there was a history. It was sort of a an animal tranquilizer. It has been used before. It's been proven to be relatively safe, although ketamine, let's not forget, was called Special K, is called Special K is a street drug with abuses, people fall into K-holes. I'm not saying that happens therapeutically, but it is what, it is different than a classic psychedelic. It's certainly not a psychedelic in terms of, it doesn't work on the tryptamine receptors, it works in the glutamatergic receptors as a disassociative. So it gives short-term relief, 
but actually a research paper came out two months ago and without being controversial, it proves that, or proved for the time being, that there's no long-term benefit because it's not resetting the, the, the serotonergic receptors. Uh, but it definitely teaches us how to get in the game, which is, you know, a lot of historical use proving that it's quote unquote non-toxic in the intravenous environment and that you have clinics to do it safely. For me, I'm really hoping that the three or four, if you want to include LSD, classic psychedelics are allowed because there's such historical use of, of non-addiction and safe usage. Um, of clearly, one could take too large of a dose if I could use that non-technical term. But in reality, with an MD or a psychiatrist watching you for the first or second time on a 25 milligram dose, why not uh, be able to walk out with a prescription for one or two milligrams that does not need to be administered in a hospital or clinical setting um, with an MD or, or a psychiatrist right in front of you or therapists and psychologists, but in terms of the, the actual prescription. So I am hoping that clinical trials, whether it's Usona Institute, who I, I heard is in uh, phase three for psilocybin or another company will open the floodgates um, but there are only going to be so many products, as I said earlier. There's not going to be five different companies with a 25 milligram psilocybin because there's really no differentiation. Maybe there's a natural versus synthetic, but we're seeing that they 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 work relatively uh, similar. The the single naturally derived psilocybin molecule versus synthetically, it's not as problematic as what we see in cannabis. So, I'm hoping that Canada, the Health Canada, and the government will not necessarily wait four more years for a Canadian trial to, to prove, but create its own path. And this is wishful thinking, but just like the ACMPR Cannabis Act called C45 at the beginning, allowed designated growers, allowed medical usage. You know, we have that framework that works. We have dealers licensed that are creating the APIs and we have what we're building towards Cubed as well as a DL is a drug establishment license, which enables us to make finished products. Um, in this context, most of, most of the psychedelics we talk about are water-soluble alkaloids. So that means they're a little easier than cannabis, you know, soft gel, oil-based, oil-on-oil emulsions or, or lipid profiles. Much easier to make a pill, a little press tablet, or intravenous, or some people are talking about inhalers, nasal sprays. I don't like nasal sprays because no one in the past, no shaman, you know, they might put other things up there, no snuff, et cetera, tobacco-related things for their ceremonies. But, you know, Mostly this has been orally ingested uh, over time. Obviously the decoction of the ayahuasca brew has been, uh, you know, orally imbibed. So I don't know which one is more likely a successful Canadian, and I'm talking just about Canada clinical trial, or Canada allows these APIs through dealer's license and drug establishment licenses, or they carve out and copy paste the Cannabis Act. I don't know. Um, I don't personally care as long as we can get products into patients' mouths, literally, and help them on their uh, de-traumatization, if I could say, as opposed to hearing or, you know, curing or healing. Um, I, I don't, I, I think that the public support of psychedelics and the interest uh, from all types of people uh, will, will, will push the governments. And hopefully the U.S. will legalize, but I believe we'll see successful clinical trials run through the FDA before we see in Canada. Some of them are coterminous, run, you know, run, run at the same time, but really the FDA is uh, the holy grail, obviously, for biotechs. Great. I think you made a really important point, you know, about ketamine, because 
that's uh, you know definitely the research that I've seen. It seems like you know ketamine is is a, a great sort of like rescue drug for people who are you know in, extremely depressed on the verge of uh, you know suicidality. Um, but I you know I, I also have not seen those like long term studies showing there you know much benefit. Whereas like psilocybin, seeing like after a single dose people experiencing relief from depressive symptoms like a year after. I mean, is that's incredible. Years after. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. You know, I, I'm not here to discredit ketamine. It is the available last resort for people that really need this dissociative process. As you said, perhaps uh, going towards suicide. I personally have tried ketamine. It was not an enjoyable experience. And the people I talked to anecdotally, you know, investors, friends, they all, people have family members that are, either trying to get out of addiction or have mental illness or, or taking ketamine in Canada legally um, with Spravato, the, uh, the um, esketamine, the, um, the Johnson and Johnson product. If it works, it, it works, continue. But what I've seen in these papers is there's no long-term. So we're getting people hooked on a, a model where you might take it once a week. I've heard a couple different uh, protocols. Um, I just find that where it came from and it's, abuse profile or proclivity to abuse um, is not is not something I want to personally bring to market. Um, so there is a quite a big difference. You know, we're talking about different receptors, which means a lot of the research might not be done when it's done on tryptamines, it might not be done on the glutamate, it might be, not be done on the GABA receptors. Um, but again, if it works for someone uh, with side effects, it's not always enjoyable, the ketamine experience. But I know people that certainly benefited, as we said, in this sort of urgent model. Um, but I would suggest there's other ways, you know, to try mushrooms. Um, it's certainly been culturally sort of decriminalized in a lot of areas, whether it's Colorado just voted after decriminal to really, you know, create a model there without sort of a commercial path, which I, I think is intriguing. Oakland, uh, California is trying to, 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 to quote unquote legalize without commercialization. And we're seeing Oregon, Washington, they're going to have more like regulatory frameworks on the East Coast, because I spent 20 years in New York, we're seeing more of a medical profile. Um, New York's talking about it, but really, I believe New Jersey, uh, Florida, there will most likely, and you can uh, elaborate on Florida if you've heard anything, I believe that there will be a medical psychedelic uh, state program in the East Coast in at least one or two states so that that hopefully you know comes quicker than later and whether it's naturally derived mushrooms or imported exported synthesized psilocybin um you know it's really about getting relief into people uh, as quickly as possible obviously we want proper clinical trials pk toxicity everything to be done um according to fda guidelines but there are certainly different modalities and pathways to dosing and in terms of, you know, the different forms uh, of these psychedelics, you know, I, I know you guys are working like in manufacturing different forms, such as like gel caps, capsules, tablets, sublingual strips, tinctures, nasal sprays, you know, for people who might not be directly involved in like the psychedelic industry, but, you know, people who are just very interested and curious to see, you know, what's out there and what's going to be out there in the future. Like what, what are some of the, uh, you know, exciting kind of like formulations that people might not know about that are currently being, you know, tested or, or produced. Well, just coming out of ketamine, you know, it's, it's a lozenge uh, that some people are taking. I refer to it more intravenously, but that's a little bit more antiquated from what I've heard. Um, 
you know, as I said, th these are water soluble indole alkaloids. They're not like cannabis, um, but you know, in cannabis, you can't just eat flour because it's THCA. You need to decarboxylate it, um, which is not similar, but the sort of re or dephosphorylation of psilocybin as a prodrug to psilocin, um, you know, one of the quote unquote holy grails in our industry is finding how to stabilize psilocin. Because yeah, the liver takes it and, and it takes 20 minutes at that point, perhaps 20 to 45 minutes to be active. But if we're extracting psilocin, how do we keep it stable? So, you know, we're, we're working on that. I know a lot of companies are, as I said, are talking about the liquefaction. So an asthma type pump spray, a nasal spray. Um, again, I'm a little worried about that. I have heard it's not exactly fun. Some of these chemicals when they hit the nose. So again, a pill, one, two, 10 or 25 milligram psilocybin pill or a full spectrum uh, ethanol extract, like in a dropper form, seems to be the easiest. As a manufacturer, obviously uh, two things, I always want to find novel, you know, uh, better bioavailable uh, methods. And I also eventually want to be able to satisfy clients as well, not just myself, who have successful clinical trials and we have the APIs naturally and synthetically to make a finished drug product for for, for pharmacy distribution. So um, on that regard, it's more of like a sterile environment when you talk about liquids and needles and intravenous and um, nasal sprays, it's a little higher, you know, GMP classification, uh, but we have enough room to build out. Most of this would be predicated on um, what the third party client wants. I have seen some fascinating things like, you know, the, like the, similar to, um, uh, the uh, the blood sugar thing you keep on the back of your arm, you know, with the little needles going in and almost like a Nespresso uh, pod concept, K-cups uh, or whatever you want to call them, where you can dose whatever psychedelic over a certain amount of time. Um, but I really think, you know, we need to make this easy. We need to, again, learn from black market, gray market, white market. Really what I mean is historical usage people don't like the taste of mushrooms. Uh, you know, they like, you know, Mike Tyson will chomp on it and fill his mouth with mushrooms. Most people don't like that. Uh, that's where the extract or pill comes in. And um, when I say the extract, it doesn't just mean the one API psilocybin. There could be strain specific extracts in decriminalized areas um, where you're getting the, the whole, the whole plant, or in this case, the whole fungus, which obviously in cannabis has a huge value. THC distillate isolated alone has almost no value in the Canadian market because it was everyone, all the licensed producers took all their bad cannabis, they couldn't sell as flour. And there was a glut, a glut, a glut of thousands of kilograms of distillate. Obviously there is a place when you're making, um, you're building up with terpenes, different flavors, but the US had problems with the vitamin E and the popcorn lungs and Canada got very scared. Quebec banned vapes um, to this day, although I believe they're talking about bringing CBD vapes back. So you know, I want to do what consumers want, um, which is full spectrum natural products. So the closest I can get to that in a lab environment, knowing that I'm starting with real mushrooms, real cacti um, and ayahuasca, you know, there's synthetic and, uh, and natural ways to extract DMT from uh, plants and woods that are not from the Amazonian basin in Brazil, Ecuador, Peru, et cetera, Colombia, and are, you know, more sustainable and certainly not taking anything out of the Amazon. 
I'm really get glad you transitioned the conversation here. This is actually where the next question I was going to ask you, you know, in terms of like, uh, you know, with the cannabis industry, how it's like we see these products that are full spectrum, you know, and they talk about the entourage effect of these different cannabinoids all kind of working in synergy to produce kind of this greater therapeutic effect. And I wanted to kind of, you know, just uh, talk more about, you know, with different psychedelics and in terms of whether they're, you know, natural or synthetic, um, just what you've seen in terms of, um, you know, can, can an isolated, uh, you know, chemicals such as like psilocin, um, you know, is that going to produce pretty similar therapeutic benefits compared to if, you know, someone was to eat, you know, an eighth of, uh, you know, real, real actual mushrooms, um, or, you know, similar, similar yeah. sort of things, like what, what have you noticed? So really we're talking about the entourage effect, uh, experienced in cannabis versus, semi-synthetically uh, derived uh, psilocybin. So I will say mm -hmm. off the top, synthetics are way less problematic in psychedelics than they were in cannabinoids. Um, clearly a semi-synthetically derived psilocybin API from Compass or whomever, Onyx and a couple of British companies, SciGen here in Alberta, um, they work. They are proving that they work. So I don't disparage between the two. Now, I already said, you know, naturally derived natural entheogens allow for more R and D and, 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 uh, you know, his taking historical knowledge forward for, uh, helping people that don't live in South America. Um, but I will tell you that Dr. Jeffrey Guy from GW, who I mentioned told me personally that the entourage effect is a bit of a misnomer and I didn't bring this up at Wonderland, uh, cause I didn't have time, but his concept is based on the definition when we say entourage effect, the assumption is that the sum is greater than the parts that, you know, entourage, not just um, myrcene or limonene or um, humulene or THCV, CBN, CBD, all these cannabinoids and terpenes and polysterols and flavonoids, the concept that they sort of build up and help THC more than the sum of their parts, Dr. Guy thinks is, is incorrect because he thinks that they all have their own power. Now you could debate that and say myrcene helps things go over the blood brain barrier. So that actually turbocharges others. That's sort of a, a singular event from what I've read. Uh, but what's so liberating about Dr. Jeffrey Guy's statement is that there's so much R&D um, to look at. You know, there's a lot of synthetic companies saying they can make it cheaper uh, than natural. I disagree based on my mycologists and our, my, our projections and our work pre-license um these products started at seven million dollars a kilogram psilocybin then went to five four three it's now at about two million canadian uh for for not for a kilogram for grams um and i think we'll get down to about five hundred thousand to a million dollars per, per kilogram so very valuable but if I'm extracting it naturally, I have all these other great tryptamines, right? These things that I can put towards, as opposed to psychiatric uh, clinical trials and research, biomedical research. So sedatives, um, anesthesia without side effects. There, there's some very interesting properties going on. So the question is eating a mushroom versus eating the equivalent. Let's say if it's a gram of mushrooms, you get 10 milligrams of on average 1%, you get 10 milligrams of psilocybin naturally biosynthesized from the, from the fungus versus equivalent 10 milligrams. 
will you have a difference? Now, Alan Rockefeller and a couple of people just today published, he's a great mycologist out of California who goes down to Mexico and he's a, he's a strain hunter. Um, he was saying that <clears throat> some of this biolytical, bioanalytical research they did in Czechoslovakia, I believe I just read it this morning, um, shows that there are MAO inhibitors, the REMAs, the reversible MAOs that don't last 10 days, meaning MAO inhibitors that are healthy for us to take with DMT, et cetera, like ayahuasca, um, are inherent in psilocybe mushrooms, meaning there are some factors that help um, essentially MAOs, I talk about myrcene, the blood-brain barrier, MAOs help the molecules, the psychedelics like DMT, um, through the gut. They really protect it. The monoamine oxidase inhibitors protect it from being broken down. Um, whereas, you know, DMT, you can't just eat. It's like THC. You need to vape it or send it down your, um, digestive path with an MAO inhibitor, um, or essentially smoke it, you know, to, to, to heat it up. So it's very similar to THCA. Um, so there is in the Venn diagram of cannabis versus psychedelics, there's a quite a big overlap, but it sort of ends where pharma begins and where the, there is no real knowledge of the other actives. You know, we're getting in some analytical spikes, 14 active molecules in psilocybe mushrooms. Um, whereas by now, even though the federal U.S. government didn't really want too much cannabinoid research, we know that THCV um, increases energy, decreases um, appetite, and that fundamentally, you know, just like terpenes are there not to help humans, but to protect the plant from predators, the THCV is equatorial and found in Durban poison and cannabis from um, Africa or near or, or South America near the equator because THCV actually blocks UV light. So it's very interesting to see what naturally helped protect these plants or fungi from grow to grow. So that questions are the tryptamines is psilocybin there to for predators to eat and be confused rather than, you know, uh, get rid of the quote unquote, a depression episode. Did humans modify it along the way? Obviously in Mexico, there's large historical usage, especially with chocolate. Um, or is it just a coincidence? And I would proffer it is just a coincidence, a great coincidence that cannabinoids, terpenes and cannabis or marijuana and the tryptamines and polysterols, et cetera, in, um, in psilocybe mushrooms are just a happy, great coincidence, but we definitely need to study all the molecules in mushrooms to, to get up to the point where cannabis is, where we know CBN helps with sleep. Maybe we don't understand every function. We certainly don't understand CBD at all. Um, it's not really a cannabinoid. To me, it scrubs the receptors. It cleans the CB1 and CB2 receptors. Um, and that's why it's perhaps not a panacea for every illness, but it certainly helps a lot of people in a lot of areas, especially seizures. Um, and we're seeing, if we want to get a little more interesting or, or out there, um, it seems like autistic children have way more cannabinoid receptors, but very small. Now, there is some talk about what the mother took like Paris, uh, you know, Tylenol, uh, but I don't want to go there. The point is our cannabinoid receptors and the instantaneous um, ability for our body to biosynthesize, make uh, 2-AG and anandamide, the two 
endogenous, uh, you know, cannabinoids is very fascinating to, to learn from um, and really understand at the serotonergic receptor level, what we now know at the CB1 and CB2 receptor sites, because no one knew that we had internal cannabinoids 10 years ago. Cer certainly researchers did, but the average layman uh, citizen in North America did not understand that at all. So there's so much to learn about the periphery and the secondary non-psilocybin, non-psilocin, uh, tryptamines and et cetera, molecules that we have to look at it from a natural side. I do not want to miss the potential biomedical molecules coming out of um, this, these fascinating uh, genera and species of, of mushrooms. Well said. So Adam, we're coming up onto the end of the show. You know, I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I'm so you know, intrigued to just learn about, you know, cubed biotech and the awesome work that you guys are doing. And for listeners who also kind of want to follow you guys or connect with you, uh, where would you direct them to? Yep. So cubebiotech.com, C-U-B-E-D-B-I-O-T-E-C-H.com. Um, Adam underscore cubed at, uh, at Instagram, my personal um, business page, and then cube biotech on uh, Instagram as well. We do uh, also go on, on Twitter. Um, or you can just send me an email, Adam at Q Biotech. Always happy to talk to anyone in the space who's an expert or not. Um, and I'll certainly answer your email. And uh, yeah, thank you, Toby. I mean, you know, just to wrap this up, we are natural entheogen producers based in Montreal. Uh, we're almost done build out. We've raised over $10 million in Canadian capital, including last month, which is very unique. And I think it's just impressing upon our unique focus niche based business plan, which is to produce APIs from natural sources, classic psychedelics, the big three, psilocybin, mescaline, and uh, DMT slash the uh, MAO, really the harmine, uh, harmalol and harmaline, the, um, the, the harmala alkaloids in, in the vine. Um, as opposed to most of our competitors that are doing great work uh, on the synthetic side, I just think it really opens us up to um, an appreciation of shamanic cultural usage um, to the modern day, CEO in Silicon Valley that's microdosing. Uh, anywhere in between, certainly we've seen a huge benefit from classic psychedelics. And we hope, and we hope really our main goal is to be the number one manufacturer for our own clinical trials and, and other partners in biotech and pharma um, to distribute in North America and across the world medications that heal, not medications that you will be on for the rest of your life, but medications that fulfill the uh, spiritual and, and, and paradox that the, the more you take, the less you need. Absolutely. I, I think that's, that's truly awesome work that you guys are doing. And we'll certainly include links to all, uh, everything that you said there in the show notes. And for people who um, enjoy the show, um, you can listen to the, the episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or most other major audio streaming platforms. If you prefer to watch the episode, um, that will be the full episode will be posted on our YouTube channel. That's Neuroflex, N-U-R-O-F-L-E-X. Love to hear your guys' feedback. If there's any uh, people that you guys want to see on the show, or if you just have any questions, comments, thoughts whatsoever, please send me an email, uh, toby at neuroflex.com, or you can also shoot us a DM. We are Neuroflex Florida on Instagram. Adam, again, I wanted to just thank you so much for your time today and coming on the show. Really, really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much, Toby, for the opportunity. Uh, take care. Absolutely.